0: doing really well from shock treatment to jason x to Police academy 6. this is sequel cast and they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end this is sequel cast and your host sebastian Hello and welcome to SequelCast2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley-Sherky. With me is William Thrasher.
1: Welcome, listeners, to a podcast of flesh.
0: Of flesh and fancy free.
1: And and you might just learn something along the way.
0: You might have to uh, drive a few nails... Into it to get what we're getting. I don't know. That's that's not even a real metaphor. I don't know what I'm doing here. Um, <laughs> we are, if you might have guessed or might have not, we are talking about the Hellraiser movies, the uh, theatrical ones. Uh, this week we're looking at Hellbound, Hellraiser Two, released in 1988. Directed by Tony Randall. Produced by Christopher Figg, David Barron. Screenplay by Peter Atkins. Which and I, based off a story by Clive Barker.
1: And I have to say, not that Tony Randall. Although that would have been awesome.
0: That would have been awesome. Uh, starring Claire Higgins, Ashley Lawrence, and Kenneth Cranham. Music by Christopher Young, who did music for the original. Cinematography by Robin Viggen. Edited by Richard Martin. Uh, this was distributed by New World Pictures. And um, off a... No, I don't see a budget on this one, but uh, this obviously has a bigger budget than the first one. It uh, had a domestic box office gross of $12.1 million.
1: And that's just box office. I'll talk about it more, but this movie was on cable all the
0: time. Right, and when I say domestic box office, um, listeners, what I'm talking about is box office in the U.S. and uh, I believe Canada and Mexico. Is that right?
1: Uh, I think... Think so? I think the it's, the con- it's the it's. I know it's definitely uh, continental North America. I'm not sure how much South America factors into that, but I believe Mexico is part.
0: I really should do more pre search as you put it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it look at. I, I mentioned this came out in '98, and '88. '88. Uh, the original came out in '87, right? So they really cranked this one out.
1: It came fast and hard.
0: Just like your mom. Um, so.
1: Well, I mean, that's her business.
0: It is. See, you know, it's a snip snap and uh, wham bam. Thank you, thank you, sir. Uh, so, Hellbound Hellraiser 2. Uh, the first time I saw this was um, I was on a bit of a Hellraiser kick, and they had one and two available on Netflix. And so I sort of watched them uh, basically back to back. Watched one of them. At you know, back to back, and uh, I, I have to say this is um, different from the original. The original is more of a contained, uh, you, c- you can tell it's more of a low budget, it's more of an intimate movie, and this one uh, opens up the world. That's very
1: true. And there there's a lot of implied world building in this movie, but I love that so much of it stays inexplicable. But we'll talk about that more as we go into the story.
0: Sure. Um, I'm looking at the the poster here from Wikipedia and it says Clive Barker takes us on a descent into hell. And it's like, well, he didn't direct this one. He, you know, helped on the script and uh, was a producer. But that's interesting. The that Clive Barker name had such weight that they, you know, slather it all over the poster. And and he had, you know, a lot more to do with these um, four Hellraiser films we'll be talking about over the coming weeks than in the later ones.
1: a very very true. Although I think the, the fact the fact that Clive Barker is just a producer on this film and uh, it's based on his story outline, it it already it already tells you that he's he's divorcing himself from this series. Uh, Rather than letting like try, I, I feel like this early in his career, he's realizing that Hellraiser could define him because it's so successful. So he's already mm-hmm. trying to separate himself from it, so he can move on to other projects like A Magica and a Thief of Always and and whatnot.
0: Well, yeah, because uh, if you don't know, Clyde Barker is a is a novelist, and you know, started out doing short stories and ended up doing novels and so forth, and both for adults and for um, children and. Also, I mean, he wrote, did movies, produced, he produced a lot of movies that at, at this time he was quite busy, because he, he was working on his uh, directorial follow-up to Hellraiser, uh, Nightbreed, Yeah. At, at the same time they're working on this, and you know, the story about how that got meddled with is infamous, but um, yeah, let's, let's talk briefly about the uh, well, plot. Can, can I talk oh, about yes. my
1: relationship with this film? Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, so so I, I, I first saw this uh, in, uh, in the early 90s on cable TV. And while I, as much as I love the original Hellraiser, Hellbound Hellraiser 2 probably is, of all the movies in the series, is the one closest to my heart. And that is in part because this movie was a staple on USA's Up All Night, mm-hmm. which was a clearinghouse for uh 70s and 80s horror movies but also weird exploitation movies cult films uh and cinemax skin flicks that had been re-edited to have the nudity removed and had more jokes put in (laughs) so i think i've seen this from beginning to end more than i have seen any other film in the series
0: so, with up all night did it have you know like a host like an Elvira or something yes,
1: it did it was on it was on friday nights uh and uh Friday nights and uh Saturday nights and if I remember correctly uh Friday nights it was hosted by uh Ronda sheer, who was a stand up comic who was kind of uh, infamous because she had she had uh, posed for playboy at the very beginning of her- car- her career and huh really sort of savvily parlayed that into a lot of infamy that got her very quickly from playing dingy comedy clubs to playing big rooms. Uh, And then on uh, Saturday nights, it was hosted by uh, stand-up comedian Gilbert Gottfried. And every now and then they do an episode with both of them together, but they each brought their own personality to the nights where they hosted the show.
0: I'll have to look up some of those bits on uh, YouTube, especially Godfrey. That's 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 very interesting because um, I, I listen to the Gilbert Godfrey, amazing colossal podcast. And they they um, he really shows his love for uh, horror movies.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of wish he would do an episode about his experience with USA's Up All Night, but it was kind of fun because they they sort of did it as themselves, as their kind of stand-up comedy personas. But uh, most episodes. Uh would the host segments would be filmed in a particular location. A penthouse apartment, uh a, a a resort, a weird nightclub. They would film all their interstitials in some interesting environment and would sort of mine that environment for for comments to comment on the films that they were showing that night. There was a really good one where where it was it was in a vampire themed nightclub. <laughs> that was really fun.
0: Oh, that sounds great. I'll have to check that out. And it went on for a few years, it sounds like.
1: Oh, yeah, it lasted forever. In fact, the, the USA's Up All Night brand out, outlasted the kind of traditional show because when uh, when Ron DeSheer and uh, Gilbert Gottfried left the network, they kept up the Up All Night as, like, the name for their late-night block, but they pretty much just showed, uh, what was that Kevin Bacon movie, Savage Creatures? Oh, weird. Or, or weird creatures, yeah. They would just play play that and just, like, shitty thrillers uh, into the wee hours of the morning.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I was watching USA, it was more the... Um, it, it, especially during the summer, they'd show tons of 80s, 90s action and cop movies. Um, you know, a lot of John-Claude Van Damme, Steven Seagal, that sort of stuff. Yeah.
1: And actually, this is where... This is... Uh, USA's Up All Night was, was not only my introduction to Clive Barker through Hellbound Hellraiser 2... Uh, but it was also my introduction to Troma and the films of Lloyd Kaufman. *Trauma* was all over that programming block.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. Huh. I bet they'd have to do a lot of cuts to the *Trauma* pictures.
1: They do, and actually that was something fun, because this is the first time I've seen Hellbound, or 2 unedited in a while, and I remember like, kind of watching it and playing through my head. Okay, was this cut on cable? Was this left in on cable? And I... Uh, I believe the cable cut I watched had pretty much everything in it, except uh, a little bit of nudity.
0: Pretty interesting. Uh, you know, I, I thought I recognized the name of the distributor on this, New World Pictures, and that actually was uh, Roger Corman's company.
1: Yes, it was. He also so had a sounds... lot of things on Up All Night.
0: Uh, I'm sure, and, and he still continues to, uh, to do work. Well, um, yeah, let, let's give a brief sort of plot summary. Cool. Of uh, of the film as it yeah, well. This were, film
1: it... takes up picks up very quickly after the first. Oh yeah, film.
0: it's almost like right, you know, back to back. Uh, I always love when this is a device in a sequel of a horror movie where the main character, uh, Kirsty, uh, she's admitted to a psychiatric hospital because she's traumatized by what happened in the original Hellraiser, and uh, she's being taken care of by Doctor Shenard. and. Um, you know, you kind of get to catch up of what happens in the first film, but it turns out Doctor Chenard has uh has been looking for the the lament configuration, the uh, you know the 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 box that people get obsessed with that summons the Cenobites and so forth. Yeah, you and, come to find
1: out that this neurosurgeon is has been secretly obsessed with the occult uh, in some, and it's pretty cool when that revelation comes about.
0: Exactly, and because you're not expecting it, because he he plays um. The, the actor does a good job as Dr. Chouinard. Um So after that we find out um, Julia, who was you know one of the main villains from the original uh, with, and was killed in that one gets resurrected.
1: Yes, because Dr. Dr. uh it turns out, uh, I, I always took the ending of the first film to imply that the house, number 55, burned down at the end of the movie. Tur- turns out it wasn't. I guess they just found a place with lots of fires <laughs> for the end of the first movie. So the house is still there, and Dr. Shenard gets a hold of some evidence from all the crazy stuff that happened in that house, including the lament configuration uh, and the mattress Julia died on. And he intentionally puts blood on the mattress, which resurrects Julia.
0: Yeah, wonderful, um, wonderful gore fix there.
1: Okay, yeah, because because the way the way he does it is that so so you find out that the basement of the psychiatric hospital is just full of the worst cases. It's just vaults full of crazy people with the most disturbing horror movie versions of madness. So there's a guy who thinks that bugs are all over him, who injures himself trying to scratch them out. He lays that guy down on the mattress and hands him a razor. So when the guy tries to quote-unquote cut the bugs out of him, Julia's bloody, muscly arms rip out of the mattress and suck him in and just absorb his flesh and his essence. It's great. It's a really disturbing scene.
0: So long story short, uh, Julia gets to go to the Labyrinth of Hell, where all the uh, the Cenobites live, and it's a very d- different from like a Judeo Christian hell. Yeah, it's and, it's, it's almost
1: you know, it's almost Lovecraftian in the way uh-huh. it's depicted. None, it's Certainly. it's labyrinthine. The architecture is inconsistent. The angles never quite line up. It's almost like living. It's like living in a in a tessellation or an M C Escher painting.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of uh, surrealism. Reminds me of the Jim Henson film Labyrinth.
1: Yeah, this this is kind of the dark flip side of that.
0: Sure. Um, and we get some uh, some battling, you know, Doctor Shenard turns into a, a cenobite. Uh, we we learn about um Oh, what well, we we learn we learn the Leviathan. We we learn
1: about Leviathan. We also learn about Pinhead's origin story. We get That's kind right. of a, an incomplete origin for him.
0: Yep. And um, and then at the end, you know there there's a, a battle between all these different uh, Cenobites and and Ashley, and um, that's you know and that's the overall plot summary of Hellbound, Hellraiser Two. Um, let's talk about the actors and we'll get into the plot into some more detail. Yeah, uh, Claire Higgins, you know it, she's great as as Julia.
1: yeah she she does a good job. I'm really glad that she's back. And I'm, I'm glad that she's she's learned from her experiences in the first film. Uh, unlike a lot of horror movies, she doesn't just reset to being an idiot uh, at the beginning of the sequel.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, her character reminds me a little bit of the uh, the evil uh, queen in Snow White. You know, just always sort of very crafty. that sort of sort of think of. Uh, Ashley Lawrence is Kirsty, and I think she does a better acting job than in the original. She... Um, she has a good scream. She looks uh, sweaty a lot. Um, and she has an active role in the plot, which again is is sometimes unusual for women in horror films. That's
1: yeah, that's true. And like these, these two first films are, they're very, they're very like woman led. They're very, very woman centric.
0: Mm hmm. Um, right. Even with a bad guy. Sure. I didn't even think about that part. Um, Kenneth Crenham is Dr. Shenard
1: He plays a great medical creep.
0: Yeah, it, you know, they're kind of pervy. Um, but then, you know, with the, the British accent, there's a bit of the refinement, too. It's uh, I, I don't recognize this actor from anything, but he's, um, you know, been working for years and years in, uh, in different different shows.
1: Well, he was in the 1968 uh, Oliver is Noah like he he's been kind of all around. He was hmm. in a uh, he was in a the comedy horror film Vampira. Uh,
0: oh, Layer Cake! I in Hot Fuzz. Okay, how about that? Sorry. Oh, he was he
1: was King Henry in Maleficent. That's one of the most uh, recent things he's
0: done. Not to mention Lucius in the Legend of Hercules, starring The Rock. Oh, that's right.
1: <laughs> so yeah, he's he's been around. You may very well recognize him.
0: Right, and a great, great character actor. Um, Doug Bradley, you know, he gets, I'm sure as an actor, he enjoyed the chance of to be a dual role, not just Pinhead, but Captain Elliot Spencer, who we learn is who Pinhead was before he became Pinhead. You mentioned a bit of that origin story. Yes, Pinhead, I mean, right?
1: that, yeah, and, that, and that's one of the first uh, things we get in the film, is we get this, uh, we get you know we hear that that iconic line from the first film what's your pleasure mister and then we cut to we cut to a guy in a, a british military uniform and it's kind of it's kind of hard to at least for me it was kind of hard to place so i couldn't tell if it was world war 1 or pre world war 1 british colonial forces but he's in a vault playing with the lament configuration and it opens up chains spew out and we just see really We just see this neat, grotesque transformation as he's turned into Pinhead. He's cut open, spikes are driven in him. It's really a a nice scene. And it doesn't answer too many questions. It it only raises more, which is why I like it as an origin.
0: Yeah, it's like whenever prequels decide to explain everything, it takes away the mystery. And it makes, you know, especially when they do a background of a bad guy. I'm thinking of how they treated Darth Vader in the Star Wars prequels. It Mm. makes the bad guy less interesting. And, uh, uh, yeah, I like how they give you just enough, um, that this gives you all that the story needs because it pays off a bit in the end, but, um, and it's an interesting way to start the film. It's sort of a surprise, but certainly by this point, although this only came out a year after the original, they realized Pinhead, whether they meant to or not, had become the,
1: um... He's the the scarred face of this series. Yeah, 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 he's the icon. icon I was going to say star, but that's
0: not exactly right, um... Because he's not in the pic- he's not in this picture too much, really.
1: Well, that's that's the other thing about this. We talk about this in the first film. Uh, the cenobites are used very sparingly in the first film, and they're used very sparingly in this film as well. I feel like the first movie had like maybe five minutes of cenobites. This movie has maybe seven to ten minutes of cenobites. I mean, most of what we see in Hell uh, are Christy, uh, Kirsty, and Tiffany trapped in it. We we don't we don't see them being chased around by Cenobites all that much. There's still a, a distant, uh, frightening presence.
0: Well, what did you feel about Imogen Borman as Tiffany? She did. I mean, she does
1: a good job. But what she's, I'm, but she's, she's asked to play a very closed off character. So she she does she does a, a good job at doing that. And, and yet I. I can't say that it necessarily shows off your your acting chops because Tiffany is this mysterious girl who uh, is also uh, staying at the mental institution and she never talks, she never expresses emotion, but she's obsessed with puzzles and we always see her working with puzzles. Mm -hmm. And that that plays in later because she can really quickly master the lament configuration and also navigate through hell. Um, And she really doesn't... The only times we see her show emotion... Um, is during a flashback where we get some, we start to learn a little bit about why she is the way she is, and then also towards the end where it's kind of played off as a dumb joke. I believe the first line she speaks, uh, other than her scream of terror in the flashbacks, is just see, is just saying "oh shit" and getting this really bad panicked expression.
0: Yeah, you know, she comes across to me as more of a plot device uh, than a character. I mean, I think it's cool that it's it's a woman, right? You have two females uh, in mm-hmm. the lead, not to mention a female as the main villain. Uh, as we mentioned, that's a bit unusual. But um,
1: well, it's very unusual. Can you can you name another horror film where the lead and the villain are both women?
0: N- not both. You know, when you when you say female lead, of course, I think of things like Psycho or um, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. But yeah, mm. I mean, the bad the the bad guy is almost always a man in a horror film. So, I mean, and, and, and it's a bit of a shame that that's still a rare thing, what, like 30-something, you know, like 20-something years later, I don't know how long it's been. Uh, yeah, This yeah. came out over 25 years ago, right? This thing came out.
1: Well, and that's, that's even something that this film series uh, loses touch with as it goes on.
0: Sure, Um but, of course, we'll get to that when we get to uh, those movies. We'll get to that would have been another good name for the show instead of sequel cast, too. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm looking here at the uh, director, uh, Tony Randall, and uh, he had an experience. You know, he worked a lot with New World Pictures. Um, aside from directing Hellbound Hellraiser 2, uh, in the 90s he directed the live-action American a movie based on the Japanese comic book, Fist of the North Star. Oh, yes. Which is um, enjoyable in spite of itself. (laughs) If you want to see a movie where Malcolm McDowell is the voice
1: of a corpse puppet who yells at you, that is the movie you want to see.
0: Not to mention Chris Penn, which is a very odd bit of... um, You don't expect to see him in that sort of a movie.
1: One day a documentary will be released about how that movie was made, and it will be fantastic.
0: I hope so. Um and he, I mean, he has a history with Hellraiser. He was an uncredited, uh, you know, he did work on writing Hellraiser 3. He did an uncredited, uh, he did, uh, worked as an editor on uh, Hellraiser 1 and 2. Um, you know, has edited several films. And uh, I think the directing of the movie is... Pretty, uh, pretty confident, pretty good, you know, w- with the effects work. I don't think uh, the, I mean, the special effects in this movie work quite well.
1: Yeah, ov- overall, they're, they're really good. And even even the scenes where it's very blatant that they're using stop motion animation, particularly for the tentacles that come out of the Cenobite Shenard's hands, even those are animated in such a way that it doesn't look cheap. It looks otherworldly.
0: Uh, we mentioned, you know, uh, last time, the Cenobites have, have a really cool design, and they still do here. Uh, but how did you feel about the Shenard Cenobite?
1: Overall, over, okay, I like the shenard The two things I really like about the Shenard Cenobite, one, I like that the tentacles come out of his hands. And I don't know if you noticed this, but... Everything about the Shenard Cenobite is reflective of him being a neurosurgeon. Mm, so yeah. the, the tentacles that come out of his hands, he can, like, sprout medical devices from them, probes, uh, scalpels, whatnot. But I don't know if you caught this. They're not actually tentacles. They're leeches.
0: I did not catch that. But,
1: huh. Yeah, they they have they they have like the color pattern of a river leech. They have this leech-like mouth ringed with teeth. Uh, you know, again reflective of of ancient medical practices. And the other thing I love about it, very very early on we see him performing a bit of neurosurgery and there's this weird blender drill thing that he uses to cut into part of of the patient's brain. When he becomes a Cenobite, this giant penis tentacle thing comes out of the ground. It's also ringed with leeches, and it has that same tool embedded Eh, in it. And it drills into his head. And so from that point on, whenever we see him move around, he never walks. It's this tentacle in his head picking him up and moving him around, which is just so disturbing. And you can only imagine what might be on the other end of that tentacle, what that creature might be. That stuff I absolutely love. That being said, I think the the leather pleather plastic whatever costume he's wearing, I don't mm. think that looks more like a design afterthought. It looks like the suit that Michael Jackson wore in Bad. It doesn't particularly reflect medicine or S and or any of the things that would kind of unify it with the other Cenobites. Uh, and the thing where his face is pushed through this wire grate and you know cuts these scars into his face. That just seems like something thrown in to make him a reflection of pinhead.
0: right. Yeah.
1: I think they should have done they could have done something better in his face, whether it was keeping a bunch of surgical tubing in him like when he's transformed. So I, it's kind of it, the costume for him is very fifty50 for me.
0: That's a good the, point. The face uh, design is a bit busy with the Shenard Cenobite. Uh, but you know, it's very interesting in this film. you mentioned it, it fleshes out the world. Uh, we find out about Leviathan, who you know, Joss Whedon might call the Big Bad, right? He is the the Lord of the Hell Labyrinth.
1: Yeah, he's it's this like distant cyclopean god that is always right on the horizon that looks like the Puzzle Box and, and sort of projects these beams of, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, anti light that when it I, strikes you, yeah. you know, forces you to remember your most horrible memories. Uh, and, and and as Julia says, it's the god of, it's her god, it's the god of desire, and the god of flesh.
0: It is really something where, um, you know, the Cenobites look so cool. I wish Leviathan would have looked more interesting. I'm reminded a bit, you know, of the monolith of 2001 or something. It just sort of sits there, and I don't think, uh, some of the compositing is a bit iffy. Yeah, the, the the
1: the compositing, the matte paintings are great, but the compositing is a mm. little bit off. But I am going to disagree with you. I like the way Leviathan is depicted. Okay. Uh, I I like that hell that <clears throat> hell is ruled by a god of desire and a god of flesh, but it's still a god that is thoroughly incomprehensible uh, and also like thoroughly mm. inhuman. It makes it makes it seem like hell is a place that. Hell is a, hell is a place that is incomprehensible. So what we see is what little order humans or human like beings were able to impose on it.
0: I you know yeah I never thought of it that way. Um, that's a good point. And I, I do like the the vision of hell in this movie. It's quite different. I mean you would the the cliche of hell would be you know fire everywhere and and you know demons with the uh, devils with horns and tails and, and pitchforks. And certainly Clive Barker's written stories with the more traditional sort of uh, Western, um, you know, hell or death right. thing. But in this, uh, they really go for an abstract uh, concept, whether it's because of a budget or, or what, I'm not sure. But it's, uh, it's quite refreshing because the only peak of this sort of labyrinth, uh, psychedelic stuff we got in the first film is that brief sequence with the sort of worm monster in the corridor yes and 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 here
1: you know we go deep into the labyrinth and one of the and i i love the hells were shown because what we do get another returning character from the first film uh frank is in hell uh and we get to see frank's hell and frank's hell he's in this he's in this uh room he's just in this room this vault and these niches in the walls uh these like beds roll out of the niches and all the beds are these writhing sensual uh naked women with uh shrouds on top of them which gives you this it's one it's one of those things where seeing these women with the shroud on top of them is far mm. more erotic than seeing uh just a nude woman and you know they ride they get him worked up but he can never have them every time he reaches out for them they disappear or the bed gets dragged away so you no, Frank, the ultimate hedonist, his hell is a hell in which he's tempted all the time but can never sate his lusts.
0: Yeah, I mean, the concept of hell being relative to the individual is, is fascinating, and um, I wish we would have gotten more Frank. I really like that character uh, in the first movie. Um, and what's n- cool about him in this, it's played by the same actor, Sean Chapman. Yeah. And um, recall in the first film, his performance was dubbed by an American. So... In this sequel, when he speaks, it's actually the British actor imitating the American voice that dubbed over him in the original. To be consistent, and it works. It's a, yeah, enough, it's actually it works. a pretty decent uh, American accent, and um, it makes me wonder what Sean Chapman's uh, normal voice sounds like. But uh, that's I'll we'll have to look
1: him up in something else.
0: Yeah, um, but it, it, it's a real fun callback. I, I quite enjoyed that. Um you know part of with with all the the monsters and the visions of hell i mean in some ways hellbound hellraiser 2 uh veers a bit more into the the realm of like a nightmare in elm street kind of feeling
1: true but it never has it it never gets quippy we never get we sure, never get yeah. monsters cracking bad jokes which i thank i'm very thankful for
0: now in some of the sequels we'll we'll talk about that but yeah, yeah in this one it's it's pretty restrained um even though this came out in 1988, it is really a, uh, one of those things where they didn't go full on into like the, you know, the, the 80s slasher, uh, quip filled thing, as you were saying, like, it's still pretty restrained. It's, it's, it's its own thing. You have, um, you know, it's filmed in, uh, in the UK. So you get a lot of British actors still, which I, I wish is something they would have kept in the series.
1: Yeah, I, I, I can agree with that. I mean, this, this movie is still very much unlike uh, other horror movies that are coming out at the time.
0: Exactly. Um, the music by Christopher Young, uh, who also did music in the first film, is is great. I mean, he's, he's really good at using this creepy stuff. In fact, his Hellraiser music is so good, he rips off himself in a lot of other movies. <laughs> Which is so... not uncommon for composers.
1: So one thing that does stick out of this movie uh, to me is that in in the first film, Kirsty Kirsty had a boyfriend, and that boyfriend oh, is yeah. with her uh, <laughs> at the end of the first film. And you know, yep. he sees the destruction of the house, he sees the demon that retrieves the lament configuration, and in this movie, he's just sort of written out without a line of dialogue because Kirsty has been put into a mental institution, but this guy who suffered the same trauma for whatever reason hasn't and never bothers to visit her he's just gone
0: i mean the character is so ineffectual in the original it frankly wasn't needed anyway i don't miss him like
1: well i guess i want his departure to have to have some level of of weight especially given how much this film connects to the first one if he's going to be absent ha- have him die or let's see him have a freak out where he real where he decides he never wants to see Kirsty again because monsters keep showing up around her.
0: I do love the imagery early in the film where she sees um, the sort of revived bloody corpse of her father with a message on the wall.
1: Well, that's the thing. It's it's a skin. It's another skinless creature. She thinks it's her father, Well, sure, but it's not. It's actually Frank. It's just without skin. She can't tell the difference, which, which is something I really like. I like that she makes an assumption and (laughs) is very, very wrong. And that assumption causes so many problems because that's what gets her to wander into hell. Uh,
0: The beginning of this film with her at a psychiatric hospital reminds me of the, um, a film we've talked about on sequel cast, uh, on the original sequel cast show, uh, Return to Oz. Oh yes. In which, in case you haven't seen it, you you should, if you listen to the show, you should probably you should check it out. Uh, even though oh, I think yeah. the disc is out of print, but it's a adaptation of some of the Oz books. But it starts with Dorothy Gale in a mental institution because people don't believe what she's saying about, oh, I saw the the lion and the tigers and the bears. Yes,
1: and it's and it's all set up so that they can give her the "quote unquote" electric cure, which <laughs> is just you know electroshock, uh, electroshock shock treatment.
0: Where the doctor is played by Nicole Williamson. Oh, great, yeah. grateful film. Um, yeah, but it,
1: in this film, yeah, the mental institution it is somewhat anachronistic. The architecture is is very old. Uh, you know, the the rooms are very kind of austere, almost like a battlefield hospital.
0: And I love that when we see Dr. Chenard's uh, collection of the different puzzle boxes, we don't get much explanation as to where he found them. I mean, that could be like a... You could do like a whole short story or a comic about that, right? Oh, yeah, about, that's, something, that's yeah. something that I love is when we
1: see his study where he has this occult paraphernalia, he has three lament configurations. And because this movie takes place so quickly after the first one, neither one could be the one from the first film. So that means there's... Four functioning puzzle boxes that open gates to hell in the world, or at least two that function. It's entirely possible the other two could be cunning replicas. But it's it's one of those things, it's one of those touches that's included in this movie, but isn't elaborated on that makes it so much more more chilling and so interesting.
0: I mean, this is a really good sequel. This one really surprised me, because... The first one is is so clever and so intimate and so smart. I thought, well, how can you follow that up? But this is a very good um, companion piece to the first one. I mean, you could watch Hellraiser one and Hellbound Hellraiser two on a double feature, and it, they would just flow into each other nicely. And the other thing about this film, it does have kind of it's it's it does have a
1: dreamlike quality, and it's it's edited in a dreamlike way. The movie just keeps going forward, uh, never, uh, and, and it is often cut in such a way that I feel that it intentionally leaves out little bits of context. And so it also kind of, it, uh, it also kind of reflects the, 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 the nature of the, of the mental institution. You, you almost start to question what is reality within the context of the film.
0: Which works perfect, I think, for this universe.
1: the the only thing, the only thing I wish there was, I, well, the the one thing that, that I, I almost feel ambivalent about is, so, so Tiffany, we, we discover that apparently she has always had some sort of mental problem, but Hmm. her mother takes her to Dr. Chenard to, to treat her. Uh, and he agrees to, but then kills Tiffany's mother right in front of her, which presumably is why she never speaks. But, I wish we got some sort of notion about what Tiffany's problem was before she was brought to the mental institution. That's the one thing I think this movie is lacking. If you're going to, if you're going to cut to those images.
0: Great point. Um, Also, I mean the the Dr. Chouinard stuff and how the uh, hospital looks in the beginning gave me a a little bit of a reanimator vibe.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of that in there too.
0: Very good. Well, oh, um,
1: well, can we can we talk about what I consider the most disturbing part of this film? Oh, absolutely. And, and this is something, and well, and and this goes back to uh, the idea that Clive Barker is distancing himself from this movie and trying not to let it define him. So, so at this point, Pinhead is an icon. This movie kills Pinhead. Uh, when right. when yeah, Philip becomes right. the Channard Cenobite, he goes to take over Hell. And there's a scene where he, he rounds up all the Cenobites from the first film and kills them all. And it is unambiguous. They are (laughs) dead. But one interesting touch is he kills them by like firing these like leech missiles into them. Something that I thought was really fascinating is whenever a Cenobite dies, they turn into whatever they used to be before they found the lament configuration and went on to rule a part of hell. Uh, if this is indeed hell, this could just be an incomprehensible other dimension, and we call it that because we have no other word for it. But, so, you know, so, of course, Pinhead turns back into the army officer, but Chatterbox, the, the uh, Cenobite with the giant always chattering teeth, this is what disturbs me the most. When mm. he is killed and becomes human, he becomes a little boy. Ah. So that that means, at some point in the past, a child got a hold of the Lament Configuration and mastered it and became one of the Cenobites. And that, whatever the story behind that is, its implications are so terrifying that that, that scene is what hits me the most in, in all of this film.
0: I wonder if they ever did uh, comics about that. They did quite a few Hellraiser comics. Um, in Might fact, be worth they worth looking make into. Some. Yeah. Um, I actually know, uh, I used to work with a guy who his first writing gig was writing um, a, a story in one of the Hellraiser comics. Cool. Because he submitted, uh, you know, sample pages, and they basically told him, your art kind of sucks, but the writing shows promise. And uh, that's how he got his gig. That's how he got his hmm. break. James A. Moore, if you're listening, hi. Very um, cool. And he has a piece, and uh, they recently came out with a, a collection of alien short stories to tie into um, Alien... Uh, Covenant? Uh, Covenant, yep. So he did something on that collection. Um, very neat. Yeah. I. Uh, anything else you want to say about the film? No, ju- just that
1: the the ending stinger seems kind of forced uh, because, you know, a bunch of horrible shit's happened and it ends with a, a moving crew clearing out Shannard's house, including the study. And when they go into the study, they find that bloody mattress and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with it. And then the iconic, you know, hell, rotating Hellraiser pillar comes out of the mattress and, you know, we see Pinhead's face on it, screaming and, and, you know, we hear the, the, what's your pleasure line. That seems like such an unmotivated stinger. Like, I feel like that it would have been feels much. Like
0: a, that feels like a studio mandated.
1: Yeah. Like if they're, if they're going to have a stinger, why not have one of them pick up one of the other puzzle boxes or or one of them accidentally cut themselves and bleed on the mattress and we just it, it just get a bloody hand coming out of it or something like that that just that pillar just comes out of nowhere
0: right you could even have like one of the moving guys go like oh i'm tired i need to have a nap and he lays <laughs> on the bloody mattress <laughs> like you <laughs> do it's there yeah like you do because it's soft better than the floor and uh, yeah you're right it, it it comes off a crisis a bit cheap um Although not uncommon for horror movies to have kind of a dopey uh, stainer at the end. All right? So Hellraiser, uh, pardon me, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, sequel yes or sequel no?
1: I enjoyed this far too much and enjoyed talking about it far too much. I've got to give it a sequel yes.
0: I also give it a sequel yes. I um, I might like this better than the original. I don't know. Like I like the intimacy of the original, but this... Um, uh, the designs, the the look of hell, the even the way it continues the story is so clever. It's um, it's really something.
1: Yeah, it's it's it is clearly a Hellraiser movie, but it is its own movie. Uh, just you know, watch it back to back with the first film.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. that would be a great That's night. The best way to see this picture. Very good. Um, so now let's do pitch a sequel, in which we pretend no movies were made to follow this, and we pitch our own idea. Um. I will begin. Do you mind? Oh, absolutely. Go right ahead. So the way this ends is uh, is with the stainer, but I want to actually have the, um, the sequel be the... Uh... I'm inspired by what you said, Thrasher. I want it to be about the origin of Butterball. Or, sorry, the Chatterer. Chatterbox. Chatterbox. Hmm. where you start off with the, uh, you would open with the little child, and he gets a, uh, you know, we see his, his bedroom is covered with, with puzzles of all kinds on the wall. Puzzles from all around the world. Because his father is a busy uh, salesman that for an international, uh, let's say, tea company, and he brings back toys for his son to sort of make up for the fact that he's not around the house a lot. And the kid is alone in his room quite a lot because he's a bit ill, has bronchitis or something. And uh, is, plays with these puzzles nonstop. And uh, his, his father comes back from, uh, from the Orient and, and gives him a lament configuration. And then after he gives his son the uh, lament configuration, he, he dies of a, of a heart attack suddenly. And the kid um, falls deeper into despair and really, really gets obsessed with their limit configuration as people do. And he uh, he goes through his own journey and, uh, and transformation. And I think the the film would end with a horrific, protracted um, scene of this little boy. Being, uh, you know, stretched at both ends, uh, the the gums ripped up apart from the teeth. The teeth jacked up. Uh, him transforming into Chatterbox, yeah. and it would be called uh, Hellraiser: The Chatterbox Chronicles. Hmm.
1: You know my my own pitch of sequel is also going to be an origin story for Chatterbox because that's been weighing heavily on my mind. So my pitch of sequel uh, it's going to be called uh, Hell Child Hellraiser Three. So nice. this movie is set uh, in uh, this movie is set in the Jewish ghetto in Prague in the run up to the Second World War, uh, and so the first the first half of it it is almost a straight up period piece. Although we will get a little, we will get a little prologue where we do get to see Pinhead uh, uh, shortly after his transformation around the time of the First World War. So that that'll be that'll be what whets the audience's appetite. And so it's the run up to World War Two. Uh, the the Nazis are pushing into Prague. Uh, you know. You know, people are wondering what's going to happen. So, uh, a lot of people in this Jewish community, you know, realize that the Nazis are are going to come through, are going to start, you know, confiscating their property, shuffling people around. So, there's one guy who, there's one, uh, there's one guy who owns, uh, an apartment building in the ghetto and it has this, it essentially has a secret basement or it has, it has, it has a very like sort of fortified sturdy foundation basement. So he and the community, including this boy who is, who's going to turn out to be the landlord's son. Um, they, they decide that, If anybody has any valuables that they're worried that the Nazis are going to are going to take, steal, confiscate, however you want to phrase it, um, they he he says, well, we will hide it in my basement and we will also disguise that basement so the Nazis will never find it. So, you know, some people are moving valuables in there, paintings, works of art, family heirlooms. One of the mysterious things that's moved in one of the valuable objects moved into this vault is the lament configuration. And while that's going on, you know, uh, local people with carpentry skills are like disguising the entry to this basement to make it look like just an, basically, you know, create a secret passage. Well, uh, the, the little boy's terrified for himself. He's terrified for his family. He finds the He starts futzing with the limit configuration because he, he can get in and out of the vault anytime he wants effectively. Uh, And, you know, he and and he's fascinated by what's in there. So he starts playing with lament configuration and he makes contact with the Cenobites as the Nazis are pushing uh, into Prague and violent and the violence has finally arrived. Uh, And so the the boy ends up trying to bargain with the Cenobites to use them as a weapon uh, against the Nazis. And starting out, he is somewhat successful. Uh, But when you bargain with hell, there's always a price you have to pay uh, and in the end, he realizes that he can't stop the horrors that are going to be perpetrated by the Nazi regime. All he can do is attempt to flee those horrors. So he opens the puzzle box. The door to the vault turns into a doorway to hell, and he walks through willingly and starts to tra- and and uh, he's you know, gets tied up in the chains like he's going to be transformed. Then the real tragedy happens. Bombs start going off around around the mm. ghetto. And so a bunch of people realize the safest place is going to be in that fortified vault. So a bunch of people follow the boy through the doorway to the vault thinking that it's going to be an, uh, thinking that they're going to have a bomb shelter on the other side, but they don't. They just walk into hell the door closes the boy uh looks on in horror and he is turned into chatterbox and that's that's the grim disgusting ending uh of this movie is you as the audience have to decide were the people would the people be better off walking straight up into hell or would they be better off being alive but having to go through the horrors of the second world war
0: yeah that's uh probably that's too dark neat.
1: for a horror movie, but that I feel like that's the only appropriate origin for Chatterbox.
0: Oh, well, I don't know. You know, I, th- I think about um, oh, X-Men First Class. It uses a lot of, you know, some of it plays like a straight sort of World War II drama. Um, it, it, it's not outside of the, the realm of possibility. I always like when you get, it, it, you can, because of the um, freedom of the lament configuration as a plot device, um, you could really set stories in whatever Time period you choose, and I, I think that that's a it's a very that's a better than my idea. Um, I really like it. Well, thank you. You're welcome.
1: So, hey Hollywood, if you want that screenplay, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Internet Mayor.
0: Find me on Twitter at m a t w p b t if you like uh, less interesting ideas. Um, <laughs> on to <laughs> on to uh, what you're watching. Um thrasher have you been watching anything interesting uh yes uh yes i have i
1: reconnected with one of my old loves so we already talked about usa's up all night uh in the late 90s the usa network had another uh show that i i just became obsessed with and i'm happy to say is now available again um have you heard of something weird video no so, Something Weird Video, they've been around, I think, since the late 80s, but Short short Version is they're a company that keeps really weird old movies and shorts in print. Uh, you know, they, they publish DVD compilations of old, like, army training films. They uh, keep old burlesque reels in print, uh, old obscure horror movies and films from the exploitation circuit, a lot of Herschel Gordon Lewis, the godfather of gore, may he rest in pieces, um... A lot of his films they keep in print. Um, but the short of it is, in the 1990s, they produced their own TV show called Real Wild Cinema. Uh, and it was it ran for, I believe, 20 to 30 episodes. I don't remember the exact number. Um, but it was hosted by comedian Sandra Bernhardt. And each episode, they would pick a theme... And they would show clips from movies and reels that fit that theme. Uh, and it would be hosted by Sandra Bernhardt. She'd introduce the clips. She'd tell some jokes. She'd give historical context uh, for what they were going to show. But then she would also interview somebody from the world of B-movies, whether it was a B-movie maker like Roger Corman or Lloyd Kaufman uh, or a star like Mimi Van Doren or just a really, really well-educated fan uh, like Dana Gould who people might know as a stand-up comedian and also a writer for The Simpsons for several years. And it's really good. I mean, it's it's, it's like a little master's class in B-movies. Uh, they find some really intriguing clips. But I also just love... Uh, I love, I love the, the, the show's slogan is, we cut out the bad parts, so you only have to watch the really bad parts. Uh, every, uh, every episode, like you just get the good, crazy parts of the movie. In every episode, they have a quote-unquote feature, and all that feature mm. is, is a a, a a movie with all the filler cut out. So you only get the plot points and the crazy scenes, and it's a very efficient way to watch a B-movie.
0: Yeah, because there's a lot of filler in a lot of the B-movies. I'm always interested in how they recut stuff for Mystery Science Theater, because uh, I find even the way they cut stuff sort of uh, drag sometimes. So uh, it's almost like the original fan edit, you know? In a way,
1: yeah. And 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 I watched it. Uh, so the short of it is Some, Something Weird uh, has a YouTube channel. Uh, I believe it's under the name somethingweird.com. You just type that into YouTube. Uh, they... Last year, they uploaded the entire run of the series on their YouTube feed. It's a great watch. The video quality, sometimes the video quality varies wildly between episodes, but you're not really watching it for the video quality. Also, it's just kind of an interesting oddity. uh, They have posted a blooper reel from the unaired pilot to the series, and they've also posted the second unaired pilot.
0: Uh, what's the YouTube channel that it's on?
1: It's a somethingweird.com, all one word. And I hope it's, I hope that the original unaired pilot uh, existed, because the original, because the the show as it exists, it's just Sandra Bernhardt introducing these clips. The original unaired pilot, it actually had kind of a plot line. She hosted it in character as like a spy, and there were other characters that came on. I'd like to see what that show. Oh, and Nandar Pandit was the was like played music for it live uh, on this really neat organ with a neat spiral thing behind it. I'd love to see what that show would have been. Although I think the format that they eventually settled on is probably perfect. I mean, we're we're watching it for the clips, so best to keep the intros and the interviews brief.
0: Right. Um, It's always interesting to see how things change from the pilot. I, you know, recently uh, started subscribing to Showtime, mainly for the new Twin Peaks series that just started. Cool. But, um, and I only seen one episode of the new Twin Peaks, and so that's pretty cool. But um, what I want to talk about is, uh, I saw a pilot for a new series executive produced by Jim Carrey, I'm Dying Up Here. Huh. Which is uh, based on the book of the same name by William Nodeselder, and uh that was an oral history about um, stand up comedians in LA in the 70s. And in the show, um, they make an odd choice, perhaps for legal reasons, in that the, the main characters don't use the name of, are not based on, they're based on real comedians, but they're not named the same as real comedians. However, within the universe of the show, they mention the name of real comedians. And, in fact, Johnny Carson is a character in the show, and they use his name.
1: So is, is, it, um, is it skirting dangerously close to that whole Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip sort of area?
0: I, I never saw that, but I think so, because it's a mixture of comedy and drama.
1: Because well, one, one of the weird things about that show is it was about a show that is just as long-running and popular as Saturday Night Live... But Saturday Night Live also existed in that show, in the world of that show, and was constantly referenced, despite the fact that television probably can't support two shows like that.
0: So, I mean, this is more about the stand-up comedy club circuit. Mm -hmm. But at the time, because it was the 70s, for a stand-up comic to get on Carson, I mean, that was the dream, right? That was huge. Yeah, that's what you worked for. You cannot overstate... How big Johnny Carson was at the time. I mean, now we have like five million late night shows, but back then it was really just late night with Johnny Carson was like the 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 biggest thing at the time. And, and, and uh, we, the exposure you'd get from an appearance on Carson.
1: Yeah, you, you'd have your tight five on Carson, and within a year you would be making your first movie or making your first TV show.
0: Right, and it it starts with a a pretty interesting hook where a, a guy gets on Carson and all his friends at the L.A. Um, comedy club or watching him on TV, very excited for him. Some are jealous of him. Uh, and then right after that, he goes to his hotel, uh, smokes a cigarette, has a few beers, uh, walks across the street and gets uh, hit by a bus and killed. Ooh. And um, they're kind of mourning him, but it's a, they also have a bit of a mystery in there where they find uh, in his personal effects in the safe deposit box a uh, part of a note that implies he might have deliberately uh, done that as a sort of suicide, as opposed to it being an accident.
1: Now, I have to ask, if you know comedy from the 70s, can you tell who these characters are modeled after? Or do um, they kind of mix it up?
0: They, they mix it up. Not really. You know, I'm not as familiar with uh, comedians in the 70s as I wish I was. The one thing I do recognize is the comedy club owner, uh, the character's name is Goldie. It's played by Melissa Leo. That very clearly is supposed to be Mitzi who was Polly Shore's mother who ran um oh the uh, comedy do you store remember the the comedy store yeah right and and the club that it's based on you know is the comedy store because they make a big deal and i've learned a, so much about comedy from listening to um what the fuck uh, with Mark Marin the podcast where he, he he started out talking to comedians but lately lately it's been other people but um any rate you know it's a big thing in the show where at the at the comedy club i, I forget what they call it in the show um there's a backstage and there's the big front feature stage. And you really have to get in good with, uh, in this case, Goldie, to get into the backstage and, you know, even just to get your break on the stage. And when you get a break, she didn't pay any of the comedians. Oh, yeah. And, and they make a point of that in the show, too. So, I mean, it's really, it's a really smartly uh, written show. I, I really like you have, um, Aerie Grainer plays Cassie, who's a comedian from Texas, who is trying to do, um, uh, raunchy humor as a female, for lack of a better word, and she's being told by the by Goldie in a pretty good scene. You know, you need to tone your stuff down. You need to, and you get a great scene where where uh, Cassie goes out there and she starts out taking Goldie's advice, and nobody's clapping, and then she goes into this really raw uh, emotional story uh, that that's real crass, and people start busting up laughing. Um, so it would be interesting to see where it goes. Uh, the only actor in this. Uh, I recognized was uh, as as an agent. You have Alfred Molina, Hmm. who's um, you might remember as being Doctor Octopus in Spider Man Two, and um, also Clark Duke plays Ron, one of two uh, comics that fly out to L.A. from Boston to try and make it. And Clark Duke was sort of the uh, um, the the tubby guy with glasses from the Hot Tub Time Machine movies. He's also in Kick Ass as one of the side Hmm. as uh, a minor character um it's good but i think there's a few too many characters like i'll be curious to see where it goes because i'm already uh it's a bit like the wire in that they sort of launch you in the middle of all these stories already going on and i was a little bit um confused as to who to focus and who to root for but it shows promise i i liked it i'm dying up here is uh is on showtime very cool So based on my description, does that sound like something you might want to see? Or
1: Yes, it is. I mean, I'm, I'm a comedy nerd. I would love to see if I can right. figure out who's supposed to be who. I'm also wondering how much it's going to follow the, you know, the real history of comedy in the 70s because one of uh, a real pivotal thing that happened in the 70s is that the stand-up comedians who would perform at the comedy store, they went on strike and they blacklisted the comedy store until right. she agreed to, to start paying people to perform.
0: That's right. I forgot that. Um, I bet they'll do something like that. You know, when I I saw Jim Carrey do a... a, He appeared on one of the late-night shows uh, promoting the show, and he mentioned... uh, In the pilot, we get a scene where you get... uh, In the show, there's two people, Ron, uh, who's played by Clark Duke, and Eddie, who's played by Michael Angorano. And they're from Boston, you know, moving up to L.A. They're trying to find a place to crash, and um, a friend of a friend... Gets him a real cheap uh, deal, and they expect to have a room, but actually they're living in the guy's closet. <laughs> and he has rules like you know when I'm uh, when I'm bathing my girlfriend, don't li- you have to stay in the closet? You can't walk out in the middle. You have to wait until I'm finished. <laughs> and uh, and it turns out there's a a litter box in the closet with him. It's uh, so it, it's and that's actually something that really happened to Jim Carrey when he first moved to L.A. in the '70s. Wow, he really? He in the guy's closet. I mean, and Jim Carrey's Canadian, but uh, talk about your Airbnb's—more like Air TNA, am I right? Boy, 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 boy. Socket to uh. me, rimshot. God, that—that's—that's that's what a- the Cinemax
1: knockoff series would be called, rimshot.
0: <laughs> Not a. Grimshot could be uh, the name of um, a biopic about Jim Norton. <laughs> given his sexual proclivities. Uh, I don't know where I was going with that. Okay, so I'm dying up here I liked. Um, next week on Sequel Cast 2, we will be talking about Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. Sequel Cast 2 is part of the Battleship Retention podcast fleet. Check out other great film and TV podcasts at Battleship Pretension dot com and we're also available on stitcher go to stitcher.com and search sequel cast 2 and you can listen to us on their um streaming and there's a lot of other great shows uh, on stitcher as well so that's another way to check us out on stitcher doodly do thrasher where can people um Catch some of your latest work. What do you uh, they, got going on?
1: They can find me uh, on uh, at uh, Internet Mayor on Twitter. I'm also a uh, contributing uh, writer for uh, D Infinity, uh, which you can find at d infinitynet uh, I've got some. Uh, I've got plenty of articles up on there, as well as uh, uh, two different video series: D Infinity Live and D Infinity Opens Up, which is a board game unboxing series. Uh, and by the time this episode is out, we'll be very close to the Origins Game Fair. So if anybody wants to see me uh, in person, uh, hunt me down at the Origins Game Fair in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Uh, you can, of course, find me running events for Kettlefish Productions, a group of which I am the creative director.
0: I have a, uh, an article coming out. For uh, hardcore gaming 101 cool and it's about the uh nintendo game based and game boy game based on the movie robin hood prince of thieves nice it's a very uh did you ever play that one
1: no but i want to see what the 8-bit mike mcshane looks like
0: you know so they couldn't do the likeness for the characters but it's a weird mixture of like ultima and gauntlet and um street fighter they mix a lot of genres up it's not the best game, um, in the world, but it's quite, uh, ambitious and, uh, better than a lot of, um, licensed Nintendo games, that's for sure. Cool. So, you can check that out when it goes live at, uh, HardcoreGaming101.net. It's not quite online yet, but should be up there soon. Um, on Twitter, I'm at M-A-T-W-B-T. And, uh, I also do a video game music podcast called Nintendo, uh, and you can, uh, find that go to kboo.fm kboo.fm and search for Nintendo, and uh, that's how you can listen to that um don't you have a, a, another show thrasher where you talk about um, rpgs
1: uh, yes that's the infinity live
0: The Infinity Live, and what's the latest thing you're going to be talking about? The
1: uh, uh, Actually, because I'm going to a wedding this weekend, I won't be on the next episode, but the next episode is called Learning from the Worst. It's all about learning good lessons from terrible things at the gaming table.
0: And what's the best place for people to catch episodes of The Infinity Live? Uh, d-infinity.net Okay, very good. So next time around, we're going to talk about Hellraiser 3 Hell on Earth for sequel cast 2. This is Matt. And this
1: is Thrasher. Sane. Come to daddy.
0: You said that last time.
1: Oh, did I? Oh, well, yeah. this time uh, I will quote Chatterbox and say.